My name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club, and it's Shocktober! I want to suck your blood. I'm a skeleton. It's alive. It's alive. All the classics. And we're finally doing an episode on the much requested Jean Rollin, the French filmmaker that is often held beside the other great sexploitation. Oh, but we'll get into this. Filmmaker Jess Franco. Yeah, the two Euro trash greats. I hadn't explored Jean Rollin very much. Frankly, because I found his filmography a little bit intimidating. Uh, He's made a lot of movies. Many of them look the same. And I didn't know what the right entry point would be. And also, I think I didn't want to screw it up for myself because I knew that like when I did delve into this guy, I would love him. He's so right up my alley that I don't know. I guess I was just waiting for like the perfect entry point. There is a feeling looking at his filmography of boy, this guy made a lot of vampire films. What is the difference between all of them? And you know what? I'm going to tell you right now, because I stared at his filmography, read the uh, very good book that was published by Spectacular Optical about Jean Roulet, Lost Girls, the phantasmagorical cinema of Jean Roulet, which is notable for being a series of essays that are all written by women about the filmmaker. First film, black and white, shot it as a short. That's Rape of the Vampire. They expanded it to a full feature by him shooting some other footage. Second one, first one that he did in color. That's what's notable about it. Third one, Shiver of the Vampire. This is the one that's in color, but it's acid color. So it's a lot of colored gels. You got a pounding heavy rock score. Fourth one, which is Requiem for the Vampires. That's the one where the two women dress as clowns in it. Boom, I got it. Now I understand John Rowling's filmography perfectly. And of course, he didn't make any movies after that. Nope, that's it. No vampire films either. And uh oh, wait, what's this? So you can say Jean Rollin is a man who had his obsessions and that he pursued them throughout his career. I think the other reason why I'm only getting to him now is because whenever I've had the itch for what he offers, I've scratched it with a Jess Franco movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Jess Franco and Jean Rollin have a lot of similarities, which I'm sure we'll get to. They made slow-paced, dreamy mood pieces that combine sex and horror. But there are a lot of very important differences between them as well. And both of them also have a pretty hefty filmography of hardcore pornography. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I I didn't venture into that too much, although uh, believe you me, I will at some point. Jess Franco made a lot of movies where people wander in various states of undress around sprawling seaside manors. The sun is always rising and setting behind them. His movies I often find very warm and comfortable looking. Roland seems, based on what I've seen, much more interested in having people in various states of undress wander around crumbling castles and foggy cemeteries in remote parts of the country. And in the case of both filmmakers, you know, they're both hypnotic. You feel lulled into a state between waking and sleeping with them. And their characters also seem to exist in that an interim state between life and death. I don't want to make too broad a generalization because I know the Franco heads will jump on me. But if I had to differentiate the Jean Rollin slow moving, holding a candelabra, wearing a see-through dress, walking through a big gothic castle with the ones of Jess Franco, that Jess Franco, there is a sparseness and a free associative quality. While Rollin's films are very lush, 
Like that's what he likes to capture in these images that, you know, Franco, he did work on big sets, but there's almost a kind of cheapness to them as well. While I feel like Jean Roland, even though he's not working with very big budgets for most of his career, he was dogged as a, you know, cheap filmmaker. When you watch like the first four vampire films, there is this real kind of like painterly aspect to his films. Yeah, they're very deliberate. They don't feel improvised in the same way that the Franco movies do. The Roland movies also have this pervasive sense of rot and decay. But funnily enough, it's not a wholly unpleasant feeling in Roland's films. Well, oftentimes characters are going towards that rot, that it is their ultimate destination. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you see all this naked flash And like, weirdly, you become aware that this flesh will also rot and decay. You know, we're all part of the same earth. And it's this in-between feeling that I think is so central to the the impact of Roland. And I think it's also what people really react to. Like Jean Roland has tons of fans at this time. And I think that's because his work has never been more available. And it's also never looked as good as it does now. And that helps his films immensely, which are so textured and that that mood is incredibly important to the experience. Like the perfect way to watch Jean Roland films is to be trapped in a dark audience and just have the images just be soaked into you. Lacking that, they certainly look great on all the Blu-rays that Kino has put out. And, you know, he's a filmmaker who's very much about vibe. He's much better experienced than talked about, I think. The movies are very strikingly composed. They're basically like this series of tableaus that radiate a certain vibe. And I also think that his films, at least the ones that I saw, are oftentimes very interested in saying something I mean, it's pretty much on the surface, but technically it's subtextual because it's not part of the narrative itself about whether it be, you know, ecological disaster like the grapes of death or it's, you know, the place of the bourgeoisie and the kind of stifling nature of them in something like the shivers of the vampires. Well, why don't we talk about uh, the shivers of the vampires right now? This was considered the best of his early vampire movies. The plot, and this is one of the more plot heavy Roland films, it involves a newly married couple who arrive at an estate in a small village where the bride is going to visit her cousins. Now, the cousins, it turns out, have died, but they are greeted by this pair of female servants who show the couple to their rooms anyway. The bride is very distraught about this. She doesn't want to lose her virginity just yet. She wants to sleep in separate rooms. Late at night at the neighboring cemetery, I personally would not get an estate next to a cemetery, but never mind. The new husband goes out and finds uh, the cousins are there. They are these upper-class dandies who talk like French philosophers who are conducting a human sacrifice of the new wife. And what we also discover is there's a vampire on the premises. Well, actually, multiple vampires. And in one of the most striking images from Jean Roulain's filmography, this vamp pops out of a grandfather clock to say hello to the new bride and perhaps suck her blood. Right. So the next morning, the new bride, you know, she's been infected with the vampire curse the night before. She's been the subject of this human sacrifice. But the next morning, everything seems to be normal again. Uh, Everyone's back in their beds. But the cousins reappear 
And, you know, they used to be vampire hunters, but they were bit. And now, you know, they're just living the life of vampires under control of this vampire matriarch who's running the estate. It's interesting that there's like multiple ways you can read this because... On one hand, Relaine was very open about the fact that this was kind of his take on the hippie phenomenon that had crested in the early 70s. And so it's a real groovy movie where everybody's kind of even dressed like hippies, especially the vampires. And that, you know, the new bride, it's her decision she has to make of does she stay with her, you know, straight lace upper class uh, husband or does she accept vampirism and go with this new, you know, group of people that there's a whole other world there. But at the same time, the vampires are also the bourgeoisie who have decided, oh, you know, we can be a hippie too, which is infecting this kind of hippie lifestyle and they're corrupting it and in the end destroying it as they go. Uh, There are also, I mean, a lot of issues raised about patriarchy, class. Uh, At one point, the vampire matron calls the two cousins bourgeois vampires because they have their own servants. Uh, There's actually quite an elaborate backstory and mythology for the characters in this movie, which seems to be unusual for Roland. And the matriarchal vampire, while she's trying to fight against and kind of rid her surroundings of all this stuff that she was born into, she didn't make a choice to be a vampire. She is a vampire. She also keeps uh, the servants going. And at the end, it's the servants turn against her. And so, you know, Basically, you have to kill all the rich, even the children of the rich. There's no way getting around that. Uh, The look of this movie is extraordinary. I mean, it's like, I mean, it obviously calls to mind Mario Bava with all these intense shafts of primary colored light. And the mood is really set by this prog rock score that goes through the whole thing. And there's this very unusual chemistry between the sets, which are quite authentic looking and seem authentically crumbling and decrepit with this really stylized comic book lighting and this prog rock score which feels so modern or at least modern circa 1971 and it's important that when you watch this film that there is a way to kind of interpret it as ah man he's being so pretentious when in reality he's having a laugh with a lot of this stuff and that he wants the audience to laugh with him as it's playing out like these bourgeois vampires the goofiness of the matriarchal vampire showing up every night in a different way to the point that one of the characters is like "Ooh, i can't wait to see how she shows up today and then she comes falling down through the chimney a little bit more about roland's life story he was born in france in 1938 his father was a theater actor he fell in love with movies as a child during the second world war as well as comic books in his late teens during his military service he worked in the army's film department in fact alongside claude lelouch uh, of a man and a woman fame in the early 1960s after leaving the army he began to direct films of his own which were quite experimental in nature, most of which were not complete and are now lost. In the mid-60s, he even worked on a left-wing documentary against Generalissimo Franco in Spain, but was essentially hounded by police back to Paris while he was doing that. His arrival in mainstream cinema came via the usual route, exploitation films. The first feature is The Rape of the Vampire from 1968. As you mentioned earlier, that was originally a short film that was brutally expanded into a feature, and this initiated the vampire cycle. And it was one of the few films that opened during the May 1968 riots that were happening in France at the time. (laughs) And his first feature, Roland admitted straight up that he was going back to the Bunuelian surrealism that really inspired him, that he would always touch upon in his other movies, but specifically Rape of the Vampire 
really dives into that. And it's just kind of like image association using the vampire images as a backbone to it. The Iron Rose from 1973, which we both watched, uh, this was his first non-vampire feature. I loved this movie. Uh, This is where I really felt Roland click for me. I'm not quite sure what to say about it beyond the plot synopsis. I mean, speaking of Bunuelian, the plot is about two lovers who go to a cemetery and when night falls, they can't seem to find the exit and they go mad very quickly. And that's the movie. That's literally all it is. No vampires. No real like monsters showing up. Not really even except for one sequence uh, that's set on a beach, which boy, uh, Roland loves to go down to that beach. It's fairly grounded, but the whole thing has a apocalyptic feel to it. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure what it was that kept me so compelled by this movie all the way through, because I, like I say, I, I really liked this movie. And I think it's because it just puts you in a particular mood. It puts you in a particular headspace. That's not the entire plot. Of course, the couple has these dynamics that get worked through through the course of the movie. And, you know, there's a there's a sex scene in the crypt, various power struggles between them and various uh, mysterious figures lurking through the cemetery. There is that feeling of like the cemetery is almost pulling them in like quicksand. There's this rot, this decay, this descent into death that is constantly enveloping not just them, but also us if we're aware of it. And the characters themselves also come to a point where they have to make a decision of do they accept death with open arms or do they go screaming into death? Because let's be honest, that is the only two choices that we have as human beings, all of us, the thing that we all share in common. Now, you also watched The Grapes of Death, which I haven't got to this week. Uh, What did you think of it? Uh, I thought The Grapes of Death was really good. It's weird that it's one that I never watched because when I would read, I don't know, probably some websites that don't exist anymore, they were very down on it when in fact it continues the you know, a surreal nightmare path of Jean Roulet. I mean, The Grapes of Death, what's great about it is that for like about an hour, you're following just one character as she goes from situation to situation. And the zombies themselves, they're closer to the crazies of George Romero's film because they uh, are often conscious and they're doing their actions willingly and with a kind of madness to it all. But they're also rotting. And It almost seems that like Roland is triggering the zombie transformations through actual emotion because they don't really turn until a character is perceiving them turning, which gives it that, again, that nightmare quality that the central character is the central point of this entire universe and that the film can only end when, you know, the uh, where you think it will go eventually happens. Basically, the destruction of the whole world. Almost all of the Roland films that we watched do have a kind of, you know, this is the end of it all feeling to them (laughs) that very uh, rarely do characters go on. And I think that's really fascinating, a perspective on all this. Am I wrong to think that, like, it doesn't feel wholly bad, that feeling in his movies? Like, there's an inevitability to death. There's an inevitability to the surrender. Like, death and decay are all around us, and you can fight it or you can just sort of uh, vibe with it, you know? None of the films that we watch, the characters, like the principal characters, end this big finale screaming or in terror. They all do it acceptingly. 
Like this is a horror that they have to face and they do it with eyes open and oftentimes walking forward, which is a fascinating kind of thesis that runs through almost all of his films. I mean, again, I haven't seen his hardcore films, which he made between a lot of these vampire and zombie films. Basically, uh, in his own words, to pay the bills, which is why anybody would do that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, there's one called from 1978, Please Fill My Three Holes. Uh, <laughs> it's got a pretty uh, pretty obscene poster on Letterboxd here. But there's also one from 1977 called Vibrations Sexuals that introduced him to the great Bridget LaHaye, who he realized had the stuff to make it in mainstream movies. And she stars in one of his most uh, well-known and well-respected movies, 1979's Fascination. When you get further to Jean Relais' career, you'll look at the posters and go, wait, okay, so may- they're drinking blood. So it was a vampire one, right? And you go, ah, 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 no, it's just the themes of the vampires when technically it's not really a vampire picture. I mean, this movie, Fascination, is about the most ghoulish monster of all, aristocrats. <laughs> the movie takes place again at another remote estate where another hapless character walks into it and discovers all manner of horrific goings on. In this case, the man is a thief who's hiding out, escaping several other thieves from whom he's stolen. At the castle, he's welcomed by two maids, one of whom is played by the great Brigitte LaHaye, uh, who I love, by the way. Soon he finds out that uh, this estate is really where a bunch of aristocrats who are drinking blood and not just not just the blood of animals, folks. And at the same time, while these characters are aristocrats, they're all women. So they've banded together and banished any male from the castle and taking control of it themselves where they can go about their blood drinking journey, I guess. I mean, that's pretty much what the plot of the movie is. The reason to watch this movie is the vibe to it, which is completely different from Shivers of the Vampire or Grapes of Death. The kind of dreamlike logic that all of this stuff goes through, that there's a thin connecting thread, but you're looking at it for the images, like, again, one of the most famous images of Jean Roland's filmography, Bridget holding that giant skice while wearing just a long black cloak as her breasts pop out of it. Through the rest of his career, Roland would go back and forth between mainstream and pornographic films. Many of his most celebrated movies were not great financial successes at the time, hence his constant return to pornography. Or just for higher gigs like the infamous Zombie Lake, which people are like, wait, is that directed by Jess Franco? No, no, no. It was supposed to be, but Jess Franco directed Oasis of the Zombies, one of Jess Franco's worst movies. Keep it straight. And in his final years, he had success with the zombie pictures, but then he also bounced around trying to find another niche that he could capture. You can feel that he was fighting a little bit against the vampire, you know, nature of his filmography that people were like, oh, well, that's what Jean Roland does, right? Vampire movies. There's a French film that is just a slapstick comedy called Ne prends pas les poulets pour des pigeons, which translates to don't take chickens for pigeons. I was shocked to see does not have a single review on Letterboxd. And you also have a period where he went into kind of like the urban decay, where he left the big crumbling castles. And instead he made films where women wander around big cities, empty and domineering places. You have Sidewalks of Bangkok in 1984, Lost in New York, which is 
technically a short film because it's only about like 52 minutes long, but was meant to be his big final go from the narrative feature film world. And then you also have Killing Car, which some people say is his worst movie. Some people say there's a lot to be interested in because, again, it's positioning these women in this urban landscape. And it's something that you don't see really until the end of his filmography. And then he went back to the vampire well. He made Two Orphan Vampires, Dracula's Fiancé, and even by his own opinion, he didn't really like those two films. He says of Two Orphan Vampires, there is nothing that works at all in this picture. In his later years, he was getting more attention, so he was going to film festivals. He came to Canada a number of times, and he still somehow directed two more films, with his last one being in 2009, The Mask of Medusa, before he passed away in 2010. So it was nice that he actually got attention for his pictures. After a long time, they were completely dismissed by most critics and he realized oh wow i do have a massive fan base right now you can watch his most famous film streaming on the criterion channel so there's no better sign of quality than that right will i'm just so excited to finally be in i'm excited to be immersed in in genre land now and i'm excited to learn more i'm very excited to watch uh, zombie lake as well as 1978's fill my three holes that one looks particularly interesting i mean we're all waiting for the deluxe 4K Blu-ray of Fill My Three Holes. It's only a matter of time. That's right. As companies continue to scrape the bottom of the bottom of the barrel, eventually we're going to get that. I mean, Mondo Macabro's got to put that out, right? Like, come on. If somebody put out a beautiful box set of uh, genre lens pornos, I'd buy it. You'd probably buy it too, wouldn't you? Oh, of course I would. The companies are starting to get around to it because even the Ray Dennis Steckler box set that was put out by Severin does have a lot of his hardcore porno films on there, so they didn't ignore the but guys, you got to get some commentary on those. That's really the way to watch those films. And I'll do it. Yeah, we'll do it. We're putting ourselves on the line. <laughs> uh, we want to do our part. So if you have any hardcore pornos of Shah <laughs> even though we just got into his films, we are now the experts that can talk about them for 90 minutes. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Oliver Crane, and he goes, Hey guys, enjoy podcast, podcast good, podcast glimmer of light amidst endless darkness, etc. I was just curious <laughs> if either of you were familiar with the Beacon Cinema in Seattle or knew the people running it. It just seems to share the important cinema club mindset in many ways. Recent screenings have included Ninja in the Dragon's Den, Horse Feathers, and All the Colors of the Dark. A couple of months ago, the staff rented out a much larger theater on Saturday night and gave out free tickets to anyone who wanted them for a mystery screening. A packed house was treated to... Jerry Lewis is the ladies' man. I had a great time and made friends with the stranger I sat next to. By the way, Will, this was the first Jerry Lewis movie I had seen. And when I went back to listen to the first episode about him, I was delighted to learn we both saw him on stage in Damn Yankees as kids. Oh, fantastic. Man, was there like parents taking people to Damn Yankees in the 90s? I think so. So the Beacon Cinema. Yeah, I believe that a bunch of people who work there listen to this podcast, don't they, Will? Well, I think that's great if they do. I'm familiar with the Beacon Cinema. I've never been there, but... I love the work they do. In particular, they put out the zine Bombast, edited by Nick Pinkerton, which is a lot of fun. I mean, we'll put ourselves on the line for the second time in this episode, Will, if the small and probably nonprofit Beacon Cinema wants to fly both of us up to introduce a screening, we would be happy to come. 
Uh, the letter continues. Anyway, it's an absolute treasure that I can't believe exists in a city that seems so determined to drive out anything strange and niche and not ultra profitable. Hey, don't worry, Oliver. It's not just that city. It's every city that's doing that. And I have a related question. When I was there a few months ago, I ended up in a conversation with the staff about whether they could program a movie that no one would show up to. A dude there was insisting that if this ever happened, that would have to give him a personal screening of Rat Race. So given a sizable city, normal publicity, etc., is there a movie that you would pick that literally no one would bother to turn up to see? My suggestion was Fahrenheit 9-11 as it's long, depressing, and irrelevant. But Michael Moore is still a big name. You never know. Thanks for all the entertainment, Oliver. So can you think of, Will, a film that if you programmed it, no one would come? Oh, man. I mean, there's no shortage of movies that I would love to program that no one would come to. I mean, uh, just off the top of my head, Phil Tucker's Broadway Jungle is a movie that I love dearly that I don't think anybody would show up to and even fewer people would stay. Here's the thing. If you play a film like that, people will come. If you want people not to show up, make a movie and play it in a theater that you rent out. No <laughs> one will come to that. That's how you get no one to come to your movie. Even Fahrenheit 9-11, there's going to be some irony poison people who are going to show up and be like, can't you believe they're playing Fahrenheit 9-11? <laughs> if I played Fahrenheit 9-11, people would show yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. So that's the problem. Not a lot, but a few. I guess the contest here is could you program a movie and advertise it and no one would show up? Like, if you program Rat Race, people would show up. There's nostalgia associated with that. So, you know, I mean, pick a movie from like five years ago that no one remembers, like uh, The Seventh Son starring Jeff Bridges. Play that. No one will come because nobody cares. That's how you get no one to come. But anything that has any kind of like, oh, my God, can't you believe how bad this is? People will come to that. It is like baked into the premise because people want something that will kind of not shock them, but. I can't believe this is happening. And Fahrenheit 9-11, I feel would have that reaction. Even if you play like Trump Land or something like that. <laughs> movies that not a single person has watched unless they're listening to Michael and us for the last like five years. Trump Land. Oh my God. I completely forgot about that one. Didn't he make another uh, sequel to Fahrenheit 9-11? It was like Fahrenheit like 6-11 or something like that. Yeah, it was Fahrenheit 11-9. I was there. I saw it opening weekend. Inescapable. Especially someone with like a big cult for Michael Moore. The, again, the film no one would come to is a film that no one has ever heard about. They don't know who made it. And the poster isn't interesting at all. That's how you do it. And uh, it's really cool that the Beacon Cinema is doing that in Seattle. Sounds like they have a lot of good programming. And if you're in or around that area, go, go. It is your duty to go to screenings that they put on. So thank you very much for that letter. Our next letter is from Jack Porter. And he goes, hey, Justin and Will. I've been catching up on my backlog of ICC episodes, and after listening to the episode on the various Macbeth adaptations, I would love to hear more of your thoughts on what makes a good film adaptation. Is it accuracy to the book? Accuracy to the spirit? Is accuracy even necessary? What makes a good book adaptation, in your opinion, Will? I would say, you know, you always hear this, but they're like, we're adapting the spirit of the book, which is correct, but you also can't completely break it. Otherwise, it's not the book. You just do your own thing. And you're just using it for name recognition, I guess. I guess. I have no hard and fast rules about what makes a good adaptation. I'm like the Supreme Court. I know it when I see it. I would say that like the good examples you can use that kind of expand upon the written word would be like the Stephen King adaptations that are good, like uh, Stand By Me or Misery that take very simple premises and just do them correctly without feeling it needs to reinvent the wheel. And the letter continues. Similarly, are there any movies you would consider better than the book? I read a lot of genre junk, so I've come across many films that were considered better than their source 
material. Looking at you, Stephen King. Well, you beat me to it. I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Beth Jack. I would say that Mike Flanagan's Dr. Sleep adaptation of the Stephen King book of the same name is way better than the book, which I did not like when I read it. Is it too much of a cliche to say that I think The Shining is better than the book, which I think is a good book, by the way. But I mean, The The Shining is an interesting movie because, I mean, sorry, it's such a boring answer. I mean, everybody already knows that like Kubrick did a kind of sort of faithful adaptation of the book that nevertheless turns on its head many of the themes of the book. It's interesting when a filmmaker like, um, I mean, I've never read the the book that The Godfather is based on by Mario Puzo, but I mean, by reputation, it seems to be a movie that sort of like takes the skeleton, takes the story of a book that's kind of like pulpy and average and infuses it through the power of cinema with a lot of a lot of greatness. Um, I, I mean, OK, yeah, in terms of my rules for making a good movie based on a book, I would say pick a paperback, use the strong spine of the paperback story and then fill it with lots of cinema in the middle. There you go. Will cracked it. I was about to say exactly the same thing. Don't adapt great books. Adapt books that are, eh, they're fine, but mm, we could really do something with this. It's the same thing with remaking movies. Don't remake good movies. Nobody wants to see that. Remake bad movies that had an idea that was executed poorly, and then do it in your own style, or do it in a radically different way. That way, you get both versions of it. We can go into the problems adaptation. It can never compare to, you know, the imagination of the reader, blah, blah, blah. But that's true. And that that's like a box that they can never really escape unless it's radically different or you're adapting a book that's eh, wasn't that good uh, from the get go, but had a neat idea to it. That's it for our letters this week. If you want to send us any, you can do it at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. And we will have an emphasis on letters that have spooky subjects. Oh, so this week on our Patreon, we consider Shocktober by watching the amazingly titled Shriek of the Mutilated. Shriek of the Mutilated is that most wonderful thing, a Bigfoot movie. And not just any Bigfoot movie, a really, really bad Bigfoot movie directed by the great Michael Findlay and shot by his wife, the even greater Roberta Findlay. Yes, this film was recently put out by Vinegar Syndrome, which was an excuse for me and Will to watch it and talk about it for 20 minutes, which you can listen to by going to patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. You'll also hear my fiery hot takes about Michael Findlay's movie Snuff. Oh, yeah. Does Will have a contrarian take on a movie most people have dismissed as being nothing but a media fad? Well, you'll have to listen to find out. And next week, we're going to be singing, dancing, and terrified because we're going to be talking about India's own The Ramsey Brothers. India's masters of the horror movie, The Ramsey Brothers. These are the men who brought horror to Bollywood. I'm sure we'll be talking about their 1994 Nightmare on Elm Street ripoff, The Monster, as well as a movie called Purana Mandir, which I understand is pretty wacky. I'm excited to see it. Excited to just learn a little bit more about these guys. When you talk about horror in Bollywood, that's not modern day. The Ramsey brothers are the ones that basically, if not created it, they're the ones who set the template down and they made a lot of movies with that template. So that's what we're going to be doing until next week. Until then, my name is Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. This is Justin McClue reminding you that on October 29th, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, I will be hosting 
the yearly 24-hour horror movie Mind Melter. I work really hard on programming this one. It's going to be 15 movies with some shorts layered throughout. There's going to be stuff you know. It's mostly going to be stuff you don't know. Hopefully, fingers crossed, and it will melt your mind. And to find the link for that Twitch channel, go to twitter.com slash that is D-E-C-L-O-U-X and the letter J. It's the pinned tweet at the top. I would also like to thank some of our new patrons, who include Greg Egbin, Eric Hilliker, Duran Need, Daniel Lima, Akinsa, Richard Neal, Travis A. Tatch, Gavin Mead, Robbie Beck, Dan, Aaron Prime, and me. Yep, that's it. It's just me. Thank you all for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. And I hope that'll catch you on the 24-hour horror movie mind-melting stream. I was kind of excited, uh, but cautiously excited this week to see that John Waters will be making his first movie in almost 20 years. Uh, Village Roadshow has optioned his novel Liar Mouth, and he's going to be writing the script and directing. John Waters for years has said in his interviews that he couldn't get a movie funded unless it seems he wouldn't do a movie for anything less than a five million dollar budget. Basically, you know, he didn't want to step back uh, if they weren't willing to make it at a certain level. He was just going to be content doing his spoken word shows and writing his books and stuff. So it seems like it will be a kind of like legit movie uh, with John Waters back. I'm curious if you have any reaction to this news. Good for John Waters. (laughs) I never, ever thought that he was going to make another film in his lifetime, but if he's going to do it, all the power to him. I mean, the deal must be not only $5 million, but he also talked about that, like, he fought so much on a dirty shame for the cut of that film and, like, that it never got advertised and that it was just a big bond doggle that he must have hopefully figured something out to be able to, like, get complete control and make something that he wants to make. And he hasn't done it in so long that... I mean, it must be something that he's super passionate about. It's interesting. When A Dirty Shame came out, I mean, it was pretty much a non-event. In a way, I'm kind of sad that A Dirty Shame probably won't be his last movie anymore because it ended with that very uh, memorable shot of like the camera being covered in CGI cum, which I think like what a perfect final grace note. You know, that's like his ordette or his largent, you know, his final statement. But uh, nevertheless... Uh, it's nice that he's working again. Also, I just think it's interesting that, I mean, maybe it maybe it speaks to how much culture has changed, you know, how much modes of distribution have changed, that John Waters' stock has risen so much in the last 20 years without him making a movie. Just like people are constantly able to rediscover those movies on new platforms. Like, you know, all those movies are on the Criterion channel now. It's very easy to share them online. When I was a kid, I really don't even know how, like, widely available certain of those early ones were but now i mean not only are they easy to share online but you know the canon has been disrupted to the extent that john waters is now i think like pretty widely considered a great filmmaker i do think it's a little distressing that it took him this long to make a movie considered how much attention that he had as a public figure from the simpsons in the late 90s onward And like they remade Hairspray and that was a huge hit as a musical. And he couldn't even get five million dollars to make a movie. No one would give it to him. Like, oh, my God. I think the one thing I'm worried about is that, like, you know, maybe maybe this will be the bad kind of late style. Maybe this will be uh, an almost 80 year old John Waters coming back and being like, hey, I'm I'm still with it. I'm still edgy. I mean, it could also be bad or maybe you would like this more if it's like reactionary and the like 
you know, way that perhaps an 80 year old man would be. Where it's like, uh, you snowflakes out there, like, you know, we were the real transgressive types. And it's like, oh, no, John, no. I, you know, I think it's entirely possible that that will happen. But then I also think John Waters has been very active and he's been on the road a lot. And I don't know, he uh, he seems very business conscious and very audience conscious. And he knows that, like, he's, he's been very savvy at cultivating new generations of fans. And he seems to know, like, how to say the things that he wants to say without incurring the wrath of... Of uh, younger people or whatever. Sorry, I, I said that as if I think younger people are wrong. <laughs> yeah, you said that as if you're like, damn, those progressives out there <laughs> making trouble. I just want to underline, I do not think that. Taking this out of context <laughs> and posting it somewhere. Just for a guy who's like almost 80 years old and has managed to sort of deal in taboo subject matter and like bad taste and shock value and that sort of thing for so long without alienating huge parts of his audience. I think that's uh, uh, quite an achievement and, and quite savvy. Have you read the book that this is going to be based on? No, I mean, I've, I've got it. Uh, I haven't got around to it. Maybe I never will, but I'm just I'm just happy to have 80 it. years old, though. You're going back to make a movie. I guess he's on tour all the time, so it probably won't be that exhausting versus what he's usually doing on a day to day basis. I mean, I'm happy to have a new John Waters movie, but I found his loss bearable mostly because, I mean, you look at those movies and you look at his books and you look at his spoken word show or anything. It all seems to be part of the same continuum. Like as a filmmaker, he's never been all that concerned with like pretty and exquisite images. And he's and like all the characters in his movies all kind of sound the same like the characters are just sort of mouthpieces for his ideas and those ideas can be expressed either in film or in a book or in a spoken word show the medium is not as important as the message i think with john waters but nevertheless i i am excited to see him return to the medium that he's most famous for i'm ready to laugh john i'm ready to laugh <laughs> 